0: C.S. Lewis once said, To love anything at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. love can be a fragile topic to talk about. From Valentine's Day, anniversary dates, pictures and photo albums, for those who still have the old school that feels like 20 pounds in your living room. Or for those of us in a more modern era, Google reminds us of pictures we took five years ago. And certainly from TV shows and movies we may watch, All of these ways, all these different mediums are ways that we're reminded about love. Sweet moments where love has been relished and fondly remembered. And conversely, we're also reminded of moments where love has been lacking or bitterly lost. The sappy types among us enjoy movies like Sleepless in Seattle or Pride and Prejudice. That's because rom-com viewers tend to believe in love at first sight. And then there are those of us who like movies about the underdog, the sports hero coming out on top, Rocky, or the hard-fought victory in an intense action-packed war movie. And the titles could be endless. And there are those among us this morning who want to stay miles and miles away from even thinking about A romantic relationship or even a close friend whether it's a dating life that has not transpired into marriage yet as you had hoped or your marriage today feels like you're stuck standing outside in cement in the middle of winter or maybe you're here this morning visiting this church and you're thinking maybe I'll find a best friend to replace an old friend that betrayed you months or even years ago. Or maybe, if you're honest, you're actually on the verge of quitting on the church altogether. Quitting on your marriage. Quitting on your parenting. Quitting on serving and caring for others that are really hard to love. Quitting on evangelism. Quitting on a job that you feel discontent in quitting on pursuing sexual purity and living a holy life for God's glory. Maybe, if you're honest, you're being tempted this morning to quit on the whole Christian life altogether. Some of you might be here this morning wishing you would have never loved at all. And of all people, Christians should humbly acknowledge that we all have aspects of our lives where we are tempted to give up. We've been hurt. We've been harmed. And we're just flat out tired. Relationships are messy, aren't they? You may think you know someone, but until you live with them or work virtually every day with them, you only know one version of that person. You see, until you and I see someone at their lowest or when they're being tempted to sin or they're tested by hardships, do we find out who someone really is, what they are really made of? It's when they are squeezed by the pressures of unexpected difficulties. You and I get to see what's been going on deep down in the heart. Others get to see what's been lodged deep down in our hearts too relationships are also messy because people change. We change our minds. We change our preferences. We change our convictions. And over time, we we change who we're going to be friends with. We change where we're going to go to church. We, We change even how we're going to spend time on the weekends. And when we begin to mature in life, we tend to change our priorities as well. What we would have happily and hastily done when we were say 13 years old maybe the last thing on our minds in our 40s and 50s now sometimes that maturity comes from becoming more godly memorizing scripture and sometimes that simply comes with age you just get older you know what would have been cool or edgy at 2:30 in the morning as a teenager is the last thing on your mind in your 50s and 60s 8:30 sounds pretty sweet to go to bed relationships at home, relationships at church, relationships at school, even relationships with our enemies are rarely black and white. You see, we're not God. We can't see perfectly into anyone's hearts. We can't even know if someone's sincerity or genuine efforts to give us something is out of true love for us. I mean, how many of us could tell story after story of how we've been sold a bill of goods when a person we thought we could trust lied to us? Someone we thought was a brother or sister in the church, only to discover it was a weekly religious act, maybe some kind of act in order to gain power and influence and reputation amongst Christ's sheep in the church. Nonetheless, what's the answer then? Is the answer for us as Christians to hide in a hole? To avoid difficult situations at all costs? To remove ourselves from every possibility of ever being hurt again? I think Jesus made it clear that no matter how hard life may become for us, we are to fear God, love others, watch out for wolves, Resist the devil and hate sin. Fear God, love others, watch out for wolves, resist the devil, and hate sin. Isn't this exactly what Jesus prayed in John 17, starting in verse 14? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus makes it very clear in that prayer. We are not called to leave the world, but we have been called to God in salvation, and God has sent us into the world to be on mission for him. And we're also called not to be fearful of the world either, fearful of the hatred and harm and threats thereof that others may oppose on us for following Jesus. Rather, we are called to stand firm in the faith. Soak our hearts in the Word of God, the Word that is truth. Brothers and sisters, from eternity's rearview mirror, this life is unbelievably brief. In the grand scheme of things, our lives, even if we were to live to be 95, are still but dew on the morning grass. It's a vapor. We're here for a little while, and then we vanish. So if we're going to be invested in the things that actually matter most to God, and if we're going to prioritize our lives with the priorities of God's kingdom, which lasts forever, we're not going to be able to avoid the messiness of relationships. And we're going to have to learn how not to be sinfully distracted by them either. You see, if we're going to be used of the Lord to make disciples of Jesus, which is the mission, if we're going to be used of the Lord to have those hard but necessary conversations in our families, if we're going to be used of the Lord to do eternally impactful acts of obedience, we must have a holy resolve to commit and to stand firm, to love and to persevere. That's why the ability to love anyone, truly as we're called to, it's supernatural. We need a love that we do not possess in and of ourselves. We need a love that only God in Christ can give us by his spirit. A love that is resilient. A love that bears all things. A love that believes all things. A love that... That endures all things. Friends, if we're gonna be who God calls us to be as disciples of Jesus Christ, and if we're going to do what God calls us to do as members of Christ's church, we're going to need perseverance in doing the work of the Lord. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, and if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 228. Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in Sanballat and Tobiah... And Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sandbalad and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Haikafiram in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews... Intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah the son of Deleah, son of Mahitabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets. Wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, And his son, Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem some at their guard post, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is God's word. Over the last five to six weeks or so, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and our study has continued to center around the theme of God's faithfulness to bring back his exiled people to their homeland as he would provide everything they would need to do so. Everything they would need to bring them back and reestablish them as a strong, united, and bright witness for God's glory among the nations. We learned back in the opening sermon of this series that due to the faithlessness and covenant Breaking rebellion of their ancestors, so the Jews from generations past, the people of God had to face the music. They had to face the consequences of their sin. So for seven decades, that's not seven days, seven decades, that's 70 years. Thousands of Jews had lived in Babylon under a pagan king and had remained there in that foreign land for all those years. But when God's appointed time to fulfill his promises that he had made to his people, the foreordained microwave beeped and big things began to happen. These promises that God had made through the prophet Jeremiah many years before began to come to fruition in living color before them as God would deliver them to return back to Jerusalem. So when you read the book of Ezra, which comes right before Nehemiah, it's really helpful to read Ezra and Nehemiah together. They're really one gigantic story. There's three big movements when you combine both books together. The first movement is the initial wave of exiles sent back to the land in Jerusalem. That's Ezra chapter 1. Then from Ezra chapter 2 on, for quite some time, all the way really to the end of chapter 7 of Nehemiah, we're going to see the reestablishment of God's altar and temple and God's law among the people. But in Nehemiah up to this point, we have been seeing that there were some parts of the work that have been neglected. The work of the Lord had been stopped. The walls surrounding the city we were mostly in shambles. You see, there had been a spark of revival among the people, but the flame of revival was short lived. It didn't last, it didn't endure. Nehemiah chapter 1 then opens up describing the dismal optics of the damaged security wall that really caused the nations around them to mock. And look down on them. (laughs) Look at your city. Look at your wall. Look at your people. Wow, what a pathetic God. This wall would have served as a military protection, and it should have served as a visible sign of strength. But because it was basically in shambles, it shows that the people were in great need. The walls needed to be repaired, but friends, as we were going to be learning a lot in the next six to seven sermons, the spiritual lives of the people were not in good shape either. You see, the physical structures were broken down and they needed renovation. But their spiritual lives were also broken and they needed revival and reformation. So since Nehemiah chapter two, we've seen two things chapter after chapter occur over and over again like a cycle. And now in chapter six, it's gonna come to a head. It's going to reach a point, and it is this point. When God's sovereign and good hand is doing a powerful work, there is also another work going on behind the scenes trying to undermine it. Beloved, when God is working, the enemies of God will be working overtime to try and stop it. When God is working, The enemies of God will be working overtime to try and stop it. That was true back in Nehemiah's day. And boy, is it still true today in 2022. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Nehemiah chapters 2 and 4, and again in chapter 6 this morning, we read about three specific enemies that over time had influenced hordes of other people to oppose Nehemiah and the work. Those leaders or darkness influencers are Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Now, each of them are from different places. They had different levels of authority and influence, but all of them had something in common. They are all deeply displeased with Nehemiah's love for the people of Israel. And they are jealous, spiteful, and enraged that someone had the audacity to see God's people reestablished in God's city under God's rule. Friends, that's that's always going to happen. When God is doing something great in your life, not everyone's going to be happy about it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, Peter says. When God is working in your life, when you're taking acts of obedience that you did not take before, repentance of sin, taking holiness serious, taking the church serious, just be prepared. Not everyone's going to be on board. You might even get fierce pushback. So far, by the grace of God, though, God had been protecting them, providing for them. God gave them a leader who was a model of faith, a model of courage. Friends, the work was making progress. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves on the last leg of the race of the construction project, where the construction of the wall would finally... Be finished. Notice how Nehemiah 6 and 7 just kind of say it as a matter of fact. I don't know if you caught that. In Nehemiah 6 1, we read that the wall had been built, but the doors and the gates had not been completed yet. But then in Nehemiah 7, verse 1, just a chapter later, we read that in time the doors were eventually set up and installed as planned. In other words, there was no way for the enemy to get in now, it was a secure, and safe place for God's people. And then in Nehemiah 6 verse 15, we get to see how long it took them to finish this project from start to finish. So look with me in Nehemiah 6 verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Guys, did you catch that? 52 days. That's just under two months. Think about it for a minute. Think. Think deeply. Think carefully about what has just happened. 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Seven decades of living under foreign tyranny, singing the songs of Zion with depression, wishing and longing that the promises of God would be fulfilled in their generation. And then in 538 BC, to the time Nehemiah gets the news from his brother Nehemiah 1, around 445 BC, almost 100 years have elapsed. One hundred years, more than most of our lifetime. And then from the time Nehemiah gets the news in chapter one, to talking to his boss, King Artaxerxes, because he was a cupbearer, remember, in chapter two, we see that it took four months. Four months had went by. Four months of mourning the sins of God's people four months of praying and seeking the face of God, four months of asking God for favor and success before he would go to the king. And then finally, Nehemiah 2 comes. He's granted favor to leave being cupbearer, travel over probably around 800 miles, not by Delta, by the way, or American Airlines, all the way to Jerusalem. With his security detail. Then Nehemiah gets there, and he doesn't get to work immediately. He spends three days scoping out the place. He's prudently and patiently forming a plan. He's gathering the people. He's getting them excited. And then the construction project began in Nehemiah 3. The work in Nehemiah 3 apparently had begun sometime in early August. Because verse 15 says it was concluded on the 25th day of the month of Elul, which would have been somewhere between mid-September and early October. Friends, after all these years of waiting, 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 after months and months of praying and pleading and planning, In only 52 days, the construction of the wall was complete. How did this happen? How did a remnant of discouraged, bewildered, sinful, Fearful, broken, and aimless people, how did they come together as one under a man's leadership they did not know very long? How did all this work get completed in such a short amount of time? Well, when you eat a really good meal at Thanksgiving, One of the questions you asked the person who made it was, what was your ingredients? What did you put in that turkey? Because mine has been dry and killing my family for years. You want to know the ingredients, right? Here were the ingredients. First, through the provisions God had blessed them with, they were committed to seeing God, not themselves, being glorified. That means they were a God-centered people. They were a God-centered people. Secondly, through Nehemiah's leadership and God-fearing example, they were committed to trust God through earnest prayer. They were a God-dependent people. They were a God-dependent people. And thirdly, with this teamwork mentality of really committed to work together, with minds ready and hearts enthusiastic for the work, Friends, they were a humbled and happy people who delighted to do the work of the Lord. They were a humbled and happy people who delighted to do the work of the Lord. Friends, when God is doing a great work, these characteristics, these ingredients, you will often find saturating the hearts of God's people. Whether it was the first great awakening of the 18th century in New England or missions work overseas amongst the unreached and unengaged, these God-centered, God-dependent, God-delighting ingredients are typically what characterize the people of God. Missionary Hudson Taylor once said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And friends, I hope you, you and I are gleaning something from this. It was super helpful for my soul in preparing the sermon. Think about how long the people of God waited. They waited even beyond their own lifetime. They were thinking about their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Friends, I don't know what you're praying for in your life, and you're saying, Lord, I'm waiting on you. I've been waiting forever. Maybe the Lord is using you to offer prayers to him that he will answer in your grandchildren's generation. Maybe the Lord's not showing you the fruits from your evangelism today because there's a harvest coming for your great-grandchildren that they're going to see. Friends, Christianity is a team effort, and it's cross-generational. Don't be discouraged if you've been waiting 1, 5, 10, 20 years on answered prayer. Or not seeing fruits from your labors. Do not grow weary. Your labors are not in vain. But when you cross that golden shore, he will show you the harvest of your labors. Friends, make no mistake about it. Even when it feels like God is absent, God is working. When it feels like God is distant, God is near. When it feels like God has avoided you, realize God is always on time. And when we don't think he's going to do anything in our mess, our dysfunction. Friends, it's that. It's those moments when God, quote unquote, at least in our eyes, shows up. He doesn't show up like he's been hiding. It's just God opens our eyes to what he's been doing the whole time. Friends, the Lord does not need the world's wealth. The world's glory, the world's fame, to get his work done, he can use pathetically weak and a small amount of people to get a lot of work done in a little amount of time. That's what we're seeing in Nehemiah. Beloved, never forget what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. A good verse, if you want to memorize, like this is your verse with your family or you and your friends this week, is Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah 32, 17. So there are more verses in Jeremiah other than Jeremiah 29, by the way. Amen, okay. Jeremiah 32, 17, this is a good one. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Do you remember Paul's doxology at the end of Ephesians 3, a couple of months ago? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And friends, that's precisely what's going on in the book of Nehemiah, as they're seeing the wall completed in a very short amount of time, with the help of the Almighty, those who had little might were overcoming adversity, working together in unity. And God was so kind to even show them the fruits of their labors. Beloved, even though we know about their success, in the rebuilding of the wall. You would think confetti is just going to pop from your Bibles and, oh, that was a nice Cinderella story. The hero came out on top. Yeah, we haven't read chapter 6 in its entirety yet. You see, success and fulfilling God's plan, God's way, rarely happens without a fight. You see, throughout this book, Nehemiah and the people have been jeered at, made fun of, mocked. They've even had plots formed against them. They've even had death threats sent to their house. In Nehemiah 5, as we looked at a few weeks ago, there's so much dysfunction in the camp. There are people and families and officials treating people like slaves. They were ripping this whole thing apart. The enemy couldn't get them from the outside. He tried to get them from the inside, and yet, by the grace of God, they still stood firm. But in Nehemiah 6, the enemies of God begin to gather more steam, more heat, more ammo as they began narrowing their attacks. They put the scope on the sniper rifle on Nehemiah himself. That means the warfare was about to get deeply personal. Friends, have you ever been personally attacked before? Like singled out by name with a bullseye on your reputation. Have you ever been personally sought out by others, influencing others, whose only intent is to harm you and to take you down? In Luke 4, Satan himself sought out Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days before Jesus would kick off his public ministry. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had an agonizing thorn in his side that, in some ways, was exasperated chronically by a messenger of Satan. God knows who his faithful servants are by name. But make no mistake about it. Satan knows those names, and they are on his most wanted list to hunt you down, to take you down. Beloved, when God is working, the enemies of God will be working overtime to try and stop it, and sometimes spiritual warfare gets deeply personal. As the completion of the wall was just around the corner, what tactic did the enemies use then to try to stop the work this time? They've pulled every weapon out. What is their final shot on Nehemiah? You could describe it in really two words. Sinful distractions. Sinful distractions. Sinful distractions. I don't mean like, oh, butterfly. That's a distraction. No, that's just... Indifferent, morally neutral, and your attention span is short. That's not what I'm talking about. Me playing with Brody because I need to get outside and see a dog run, that, that's a fine distraction to have. You know, when Julie's baking brownies, I, I do want to be distracted and go downstairs and eat them. Those are not what I'm talking about. Sinful distractions. Distractions that would range from appearing harmless at first, but with evil intent, all the way to outright no sugarcoating, evil and ugly in your face. What is a sinful distraction then for a Christian? What is a sinful distraction? A sinful distraction is anything that seeks out your attention to unhitch your love and obedience for Jesus. A sinful distraction is anything that seeks out your attention, that's the distracting part, but here's the intent, to unhitch your love and obedience for Jesus. That's any relationship, any person, any object, anything, any opportunities that present itself to cause you to sin or to cause you to no longer hunger for the things of God. That is a sinful distraction. What sinful distraction has recently caught your attention lately? What sinful distraction have you let get too cozy in the living room of your life lately? What relationship have you allowed to stay in your life that is hurting your joy in God? You see, when spiritual forces of evil are at play, they will tempt you and I relentlessly. They will not sleep. Paul Graham says it well. Distraction is not a static obstacle that you avoid like you might avoid a rock in the road. Distraction seeks you out. The enemies of Nehemiah 6 hurled multiple attempts at Nehemiah to get his mind off the work and to lead him astray. And really, we find out to actually make him afraid to do the work. If you're taking notes, I want you to notice two sinful distractions that we see in our passage. This is really the the meat and potatoes part of the sermon here. What are the two sinful distractions that Nehemiah had come into his life that I think will also come into our lives if they haven't already? Distraction number one. Wasting time on spiritually harmful and spiritually unhelpful activities. Wasting time on spiritually harmful and spiritually unhelpful activities. That's verses two to four. Distraction number two. Being preoccupied by false accusations and fearing man over fearing God. Being preoccupied, that literally means to be overly busy and overly concerned with, by false accusations, so untrue things said about you, and fearing man over fearing God. That's really the rest of all chapter 6. Let's look at distraction number one. Wasting time on spiritually harmful and spiritually unhelpful activities. Look at me starting in verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come. Can you just hear it? Come. Let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Anah. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, where is the plane of Ono? I haven't been told anyone's got vacation plans to Ono anytime soon. Well, just to keep it simple, it's about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, for us, that might seem like nothing. You probably drove further than that. We've got the Rudy residence, I'm sure, had to drive farther than that. We have our Oklahoma Hevener, shout out, there we go. This would have been about the same distance from Fort Smith to Sallisaw, Oklahoma. So if Nehemiah had an F-150, because he'd be a Ford guy, he could get there in like 30 minutes, right? Well, there's a problem. There ain't no F-150s going on around there. Maybe an F-1 donkey. No, there are no Hemis in his day, just the real horses. And there are no modern-day highways like we have. So for Nehemiah to leave his post, blood, sweat, and tears, fighting with one hand, building on the other, rounding up the troops for 52 days, for him to leave all that, it would have taken him at least over a day. And that's without stops. And that's without any bad weather. What's the point I'm trying to make? These men who have already shown a proven track record, of hatred, mockery, and abuse should not be trusted. Until they show repentance, Nehemiah should not trust them, no matter how nice their invitation was to come to Ano. You see the territory, if you look at a map, you study Nehemiah 4, this would have been exactly on the border where all the enemies lived. In other words, this kind, respectful, putting together the birthday list, invitation out to Nehemiah, it was all a trap. It was a plot. They weren't genuine. Remember, Nehemiah says they wanted to do me harm. You see, these men couldn't beat Nehemiah on his turf, so they wanted to get him on their turf, in their office, in their home, where the enemies of God were living. They had failed attempt after attempt, and they're trying to lure Nehemiah in with niceness. By the way, niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is. Niceness is just being polite so you don't get in an argument. Kindness is an aspect of God's love. Not the same. Thomas Brooks once said, Satan will come on with new temptations when old ones are too weak. In a calm, prepare for a storm. Brothers and sisters, we should intentionally, listen to me, we should intentionally avoid places where you know you're susceptible to sin. Okay, I want to step on a few toes here. Read Proverbs 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. The call of the father, the call of the mama to their kids is, if sinners say, come with us, do not let them entice you. If the adulterous woman or the adulterous man comes your way, with all their money, and their looks, and their fragrances, and their availability. Stay away. Run. If someone has a proven track record of hypocrisy, cyclical hypocrisy, sinful intent to manipulate and intimidate, stay away until God does something in their heart They are dangerous for your soul. Friends, that means there are certain birthday parties that you're going to be invited to that you should not go to. There are certain banquets and dinner parties that adults should RSVP to very kindly, sorry, I cannot come. There are certain mama days out and men going hunting this fall that you should decline. Because the man with that gun or the mama with their carriage has different motives in mind than what you and I may see with the eye. There are certain get-togethers that many will go to that will not honor the Lord. Oh, friends, if there is ever a moment, the Church of Jesus Christ, and let me just get specific to CCBC, that we need discernment. It's right now. If I took every story I know of pain and heartache and betrayal in your lives and then put the cherry on top with mine, you can just write it off. We need better discernment with who we're spending the most time with. For some family situations, that might mean you need prayer and counsel for this, that your kids can't go to certain family members' houses, not without your supervision. Their beliefs and their behavior, they might be crossing boundaries that God would say, keep away from your kids. Let me also give a word of evangelistic advice too. I love bold evangelists. I love the brother and sister says, Brother Blake, let's go knock on doors right now and share the gospel of Jesus. I love them. They're fun to be around and they're contagious. But for the 85% of you who won't go knock on doors necessarily this afternoon, you and I have unbelievers in our life. We should befriend unbelievers. We should pray for unbelievers. We should not shun unbelievers. We should not self-righteously look down upon them and judge unbelievers. But when you are around unbelievers, they do not possess the spirit of the living God. They do not share the same table fellowship, the koinonia that we share at the communion table. Friend, the Bible is clear. Do not be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or consider James' words, James 4 verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you're going to befriend unbelievers, and you should, and evangelize them, and we should, do your best to get them on your turf. Invite them to your home. Invite unbelievers to this church. Friends, it'll be a rebuke on the day of judgment if we're not inviting unbelievers to this congregation. We preach the gospel every Sunday, unashamed, and we have really long services, so love them ahead of time and tell them. But friends, a little bit of gang evangelism wouldn't hurt some of us. Get a bunch of Christians around that unbeliever you love. Don't be a lone ranger sheep and get devoured by wolves in a pack. It's dangerous. Your pastor would rarely do that. I would never plan to do that. And if I wouldn't do that, I would encourage you to follow suit. Friends, we should never put ourselves intentionally Sometimes we can't help the situation. You're in a difficult marriage. You're in a different home. Those are different situations we have to think through. Friends, we need support. We need accountability. What did Jesus tell his disciples before he sent them out? Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So how was, this sinful, how was this a sinful distraction for Nehemiah? I mean, really? Just think for a minute. First, these men were not spiritually good for Nehemiah. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they have shown no signs of ever being spiritually good for Nehemiah in one verse in the entire book. They're bad news from day one, and they've stayed bad news to day 52. Ungodly company. Friends will not view how they spend their time in the same way a Christian should spend their time. Think about it. We don't serve the same God. We don't have the same value system. And friends, we don't even view the way we spend our time the same. Think of Ephesians 5 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, but as, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time for the days are evil. Let me just give you one practical example about how this plays out. Non-Christians typically view Sunday as a second Saturday. They don't think twice about sleeping until noon. They don't think twice about working overtime to make more money when you really don't need it. They don't think twice about doing travel baseball and missing five months of church. They don't think twice About the day they're going to stand before God and how they use the time he gave them. But for the Christian, for for the person who realizes they've been bought with a price, there are no days off from Christianity. Every day is to be lived for him. And on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, Christians are to gather as a church, to gather as his people, to stir up one another, to love and good deeds, as we say today, drawing near. Friends, Christians and non-Christians do not view time the same way. We are thinking of eternity. They're thinking about the next raise in their job or the next sin they can go after. Our gaze is way beyond that, and our time and how we spend it should reflect it. Secondly, meeting these two men, I mean, very logically here, they would have pulled Nehemiah away from the work that God had called him to. Jesus teaches us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Proverbs tells us, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Friends, Nehemiah knew this. He knew he had to redeem the time. That's why in verse three, did you notice how he answered back to them? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop Why leave it and come down to you? Kids, students. If I say students, that means 6th to 12th grade. That's kind of our new vernacular. But if you are in school before that, you can still look up too. Here's my plea to you this morning. As your parents' pastor, and I'm sure you consider me your pastor too, don't waste time in your younger days. Don't waste time in your younger days. Don't buy the lie that you can get right with God later in life. Friends, you're not promised tomorrow. Seek the Lord starting today. Get serious about God's word today. Surround yourself with Christian friends that are going to help you follow Jesus today. Study well and hard in school starting today. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Jonathan Edwards once said, We are accountable to God for our time. Time is a precious commodity given by God. He has given us our days, and they are to be used for something. Our days were appointed for some work. Therefore, God will at the day's end call us to an account. We must give an account to him of the use of all our time. We are God's servants, and as servants are accountable to the master, so we are accountable to God. If we would consider this properly and keep it in mind, we would improve our use of time. Would not we behave differently if we remembered every morning that we must give an account to God for how we spent that day? Brothers and sisters, do you sense the preciousness of time in your life? Do you feel an urgency of making disciples of Jesus Christ? May God give each one of us a holy kick in the pants that we don't have as much time on this earth as we think we do. May he teach each one of us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Distraction number two, being preoccupied by false accusations and fearing man over fearing God. You see, Nehemiah had resisted, did you see, how many times? It's not just one time. Not just two invitations, not just three but four. But even after four had come, they were going to bring a fifth one. They began broadcasting. That means let's make this thing public. False accusation through a publicly shared handwritten letter. In verses five to six, the letter is sent to Nehemiah because it's deeply personal, accusing him of being an insurrectionist, someone who's campaigning himself to be the next king in Judah accusing Nehemiah of being seditious, self-serving, and a liar, someone who you should not trust. Verse 7, they even go so far as to claim that he bribed prophets. He paid people to adopt his agenda and tell everyone he's the next big thing. Isn't it amazing how low people will go to boost their ego to take you down? Well, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? Apart from the grace of God, we're all radically depraved. Notice how Nehemiah responds in verse 8. Then I sent to him. Notice the way he responds. It's the first time he's really dialoguing with them. No such things as you say have been done. In other words, exposing the darkness, speaking the truth. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. You're making it up. This is an ancient tactic of the evil one. This is how he often distracts God's people from focusing on God. Juicy gossip. Fiction being treated as facts. Hearsay being treated as thus saith the Lord. Friends, this is always the mark of the father of lies. He can take a group of people Pit them against each other over the most childish, immature, and silliest of things. But behind this distraction of false accusations was the intent to intimidate Nehemiah. To make him afraid. To put fear in his heart. In fact, I want you to glance down with me. Multiple times we see it in our account. Nehemiah 6 verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us. Nehemiah 6, 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. Nehemiah 6, 14, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Nehemiah 6, verse 19, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. If the evil one can't get you, to dive headfirst into sin, he will keep you shackled in fear from obeying the Lord. If he cannot get you to dive headfirst into sin, he will do whatever he can to keep you shackled in fear from obeying the Lord. Who in your life tries to intimidate you? Who in your life is trying to instill fear in you? Who in your life is trying to control you through mind games and emotional manipulation? Friends, manipulation and intimidation, that's the common tactics of an abuser call it for what it is. Someone who wants control over a spouse or a child or a brother or sister, especially when they get much older. That's demonic. That's not love. Friends, this is also a common tactic when someone's caught in grotesque sin, like adultery, or some other shameful sin that they don't want to own up to. As soon as you peer into their life and you call out the darkness, you're inventing it out of your own mind. You call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. Guess what's going to come back? Or you're going to get pushed back. The darkness hates the light because its works are being exposed. I can tell you as a pastor for the last 10 years, I eat slander and criticism for breakfast. Join the dinner table. We should not want slander and criticism, but do not expect to be bold for Jesus and come out unscathed. Second Timothy 3.12, all of us who want to be godly will be persecuted. This could take on a bunch of different ways in our life, right? Someone threatening a lawsuit against you, someone harshly throwing around divorce to jerk you around like a joystick, Someone threatening your very safety and life. I even got an email this week from a pastor in Kansas City. Literally, his family's in, in fear because of things on Twitter of people saying things about burning down his house. This is real. It's not just in foreign countries. Right now in our country. Someone using harsh and cruel speech to belittle you, make fun of you, tell other people false things about you. But friends, how should we handle it? How should we respond? Let me give you a few words of counsel. Examine what is being said. Surround yourself with people who know you well and are not afraid to tell you if the accusation's true or not. And allow them to defend you more than you defend yourself. Now, there may come a time where you do need to speak up. Nehemiah, he was getting blasted personally and he had an opportunity. Here's a letter, I'm gonna to respond to it. But I would say this, When we are accused, when we are slandered for following the Lord Jesus, sometimes less is more. If you do speak up, make it count. Make sure others are checking you on what you're going to say. Make sure they're fact-checking what you're going to say. And then let God judge justly. But friends, no matter how harsh a criticism or slander may come, God has already told us the worst things about us. He nailed his son on a cross for our sin. So even the false accusations and slander that may hurt pales in comparison to what God knows perfectly about our sins in the light. Oh, friends, if someone says, you're selfish, you're mean, you're judgmental, you know what the Christian way to respond is? Actually, I'm worse than that. God already called you on that by nailing Jesus to the cross for me. And by the grace of God, I'm no longer identified as such. God has saved me by his grace. Uh, To my non-Christian friend, who do you run to when you're afraid? Who do you run to for help and hope when you're accused falsely? Friends, there's only one who's ever been accused and remained without sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus walked this very earth in perfect obedience to God, redeemed the time God gave him in his brief 33 years on earth, And he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice, taking the punishment for the sins we really have committed, for the badness and the ugliness and the darkness we really are before God. And he rose from the dead, giving us victory and courage and faith, even in the face of our greatest enemies, which is ultimately death. Jesus is the only one who's been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Turn from your sins. God already knows everything you've ever done. And look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Brothers and sisters, if you fear God, false accusations from men may sting, but they won't stick. The power of a clear conscience before God is stronger than an evil conscience speaking lies. In verses 10 to 11, a man named Shemaiah had been hired by the enemies to trap Nehemiah. Did you, did, did you notice there what he wanted to get him? I couldn't get him in Ono. I'm going to get him in the temple. Going to get him in the house of worship. A guy was literally bribed from the inside. Tr- tr- try to basically trip up Nehemiah. And then verses 17 and 19, Tobiah is said to have family ties in Jerusalem. He's married into the family. He's got siblings that belong to that church, if you will. The enemy is striking on every side, from the outside, from the inside, to people who know people, and they follow and watch Nehemiah's every move. I mean, there's basically a mole in Jerusalem, and they're watching him. But brothers and sisters, Nehemiah embodies what Christ did perfectly. He feared God more than he feared man. Robert Murray Machine once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. By God's strength sustaining him, Nehemiah once again resisted the sinful distractions of the enemies of God. So what did Nehemiah do next? Is this when the confetti comes out of the Bible? What did he do now that the project was over? Look briefly, briefly at chapter 7. Yes, this is one of those moments where I pastorally punt reading a lot of Hebrew names that I wouldn't be able to pronounce accurately, but I do want you to understand the importance of Nehemiah chapter 7. In verses 1 to 3, we see that Nehemiah then establishes qualified leaders. Not only did he station the singers and the Levites in the designated ministry task, he also made sure that other men who feared God would be given oversight. His brother Hananiah, that we heard about in chapter 1, and Hananiah was given charge over Jerusalem. And you know why, Nehemiah says? He was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Friends, the answer for bad leadership is not no leadership. The answer for bad leadership is good leadership. Make sure you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater in every sphere of your life. God will provide in his timing and in his way. But do not let the evil one take bad leaders and distort your mind over good leaders. CCBC, pray that God continues to give our church God-fearing leaders. Pray that God would grant each one of us boldness to model before the flock courage and boldness in God and not fear men. And then in verses 5 to 73, we see Nehemiah basically just do the next thing God had put on his heart. As you read there, verses 5 and 6, he basically grabs this massive membership directory. So Jansen, imagine this being your membership directory to put together for the church. The names would like stretch across the whole page. Good luck. But there's there's a lot of people's names, and this is a genealogy. These are the names of the original exiles and their descendants from 538 BC. So he has this document. We're not really sure how he got it. It's almost a repeat of Ezra 2. But here's a summary of what he does with these people. In verse 5, he assembles all the names and their families together. Verse 73, he tells them to repopulate back into their family hometowns. So what is Nehemiah 7 doing in the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah was organizing the people, listen, to prepare them for the next big season of life and ministry together. The wall was complete, but the mission was far from over. Members of CCBC, pastor to member, talking to you now. Almost two years ago, we became a church plant, but now we are no longer a church plant. We are now an established gospel preaching, gospel believing, and by his grace, gospel obeying church, aiming to be faithful and healthy for the glory of God. Over the last two years, we have spent a lot of time teaching and reteaching on many of the basic fundamentals of the faith, from our membership classes to our Bible studies to teaching on meaningful church membership and church discipline to teaching on elders and deacons to establishing a solid children's ministry that is growing. And soon we'll be focusing our time on student ministry of kids 6th to 12th grade. Over the next coming years, we'll be studying more together on topics like missions, domestic and foreign, partnerships with other ministries, hiring more staff, Lord willing, installing more elders, Lord willing, and then starting in a few weeks, we're going to begin using every square inch of every bit of the property that God has kindly blessed this church with. And as we do that, as we stay focused on the mission of making disciples right here In Barling, Arkansas, we are prayerfully looking for the day we can build on Chad Colley Boulevard and Chaffee Crossing. Brothers and sisters, here I raise my Ebenezer. Till now, the Lord has helped us. He has helped us in your personal life. He has helped us in our church's life. But friends, we have to move forward to what lies ahead. Successes in the past can't be lived there. We remember, but we look forward. Perseverance will be needed as we face new challenges, new accusations, new distractions, and new temptations that will come our way. Because boy, they will come. But no matter what comes, We've been shown from Nehemiah 6 and more importantly from our Lord Jesus how not to waste time on things that are sinfully distracting. Fearing God is the remedy in our heart for overcoming the fear of man. Placing God first in all our priorities will give clarity on what you're supposed to do next in obedience to him. Perseverance is what is required for every relationship we have. What is perseverance? Perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. Friends, there are no ministry shortcuts in the kingdom of God, only faithfulness. There are no shortcuts in obeying obeying the Lord, only a long obedience in the same direction. But by the help of our God, he will hold us fast. In a little while, this life will be a long time ago. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Nehemiah 6 and 7. We thank you that an ancient book still speaks into our lives even right now. Lord, give each one of us the perseverance needed to love those who are hard to love and to say no to those who seek to do us harm in our life. Lord, give us discernment with the relationships we have in our life, from dating to friendships to even family get-togethers. Or give us discernment on what is spiritually helpful versus spiritually harmful. Lord, we pray for wisdom to be given to those who are in very difficult family situations where they must stand firm and be a bright witness before a dark area, before a dark person. Lord, we pray that CCBC, Lord, you would make us strong, make us one, keep us focused on the mission before us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.